now, our feature presentation. everyone, welcome to another episode of the Florida Sound Archive podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser, and today's guest started her own independent record label, Fiddler Records, at just 16 years old. You may know her as Amy Fiddler. We've got here Amy Fleischer Madden here on the podcast. Hey, how are you, Amy? Great to have you. I'm great. How are you? I am fantastic. I've been looking forward to this interview, getting a chance to talk about your new book, Negatives, which is really exciting, and also some of your life and some of the history, because you've been uh, around the Florida music scene in the late 90s, early 2000s, so a lot to talk about. Yes, so much to talk about. (laughs) So getting started with your new book coming out called Negatives. Now, this book is a photographic archive of emo from 1996 to 2006, a really great period for the genre. So talk about that for a minute. And what were some of the reasons you came out with this book? Um, That's a great question. I was rummaging through my friend's I guess it's a basement storage space type thing. Um, A friend of mine from Florida, a photographer named RJ Shaughnessy, um, that would make a great guest for you also. Uh, We were going through his stuff and I found some old negatives from when I had my label and even before that, uh, just some Florida things. And it was just like, oh my gosh, there's so much here. There's so much we could do with this. And after I spent a bit going through his work, I started going back and looking in my old boxes that I haven't looked in forever. And it was just like, this is something like enough time had passed where the people that were in the photos were now like in some of the biggest bands in the world. And it was like, this is crazy. We have photos that no one's ever seen. Even the band members had never seen them because back then when you shot, you shoot on film, you don't always get to see everything. Um, And it just was a it was like a eureka moment from there. And there are some great bands photographed in that book. And I know some of the bands, all the bands on there and the Florida bands specifically, you know, Dashboard Confessional, Hot Water Music. Further seems forever, right? So some really great bands. How are you able to narrow it down? Because there were so many amazing bands from that time period. How did you narrow that down to those specific bands that were actually in the book? Um, That's another really great question. That was a hard part of the process because I didn't love the idea of like, I get, I have to decide like what matters, you know? And I'm such a like, hands-off type person like your your history is your memory of it and I don't want to tarnish anybody's like favorite band by not including them so things like that really kept me up at night like am I going to forget somebody is somebody going to be really upset they weren't included is somebody going to be upset that they were included which is even weirder um but I had to make like hard and fast rules like uh, the first big qualifier was, are there beautiful photos of this band? 
And if and if the answer was no, it's a photo archive. It's not a Wikipedia entry. So that made it really easy. So I would go from there and then I would have to go like, how far did the band's reach go? Like, was there an impact? Was there like a ripple effect from what they did into other bands? Um, it was it was a lot. It was like, you know, thesis level curation. <laughs> I can imagine. And also growing up in South Florida, like you did in, in the nineties, there were a lot of great bands, right? Especially in Florida. So how important was that to you to really include some of those bands that were the ones that you grew up with, that you would see at shows when you were kind of coming of age? Um, That's something I really had to like, I don't know if we could say I had to meditate on it. So like, if I was from New Jersey or New York or Long Island, this book would have looked different because the person experiencing it and growing up in it would have experienced different bands and different movements firsthand. Um, and I had to kind of own my geographic roots and be like, I'm from Florida. So this is my perspective of how things were. So I did my best to like include you know, as many bands as I could, but definitely there is some hometown pride to it where like Florida stuff did matter a lot more to me, obviously because of my location. Yes. And speaking of Florida stuff, your background picture in the frame, the shortest distance compilation. And I did dig out mine. So here. Oh my gosh, you actually have a copy. That's I do have a copy. And I would imagine this would have been a great artifact to pull out in order to kind of help capture just what was it like back then? I mean, some of those bands that are on this compilation, like the agency, Newfound Glory, Last Minute, Pivot. I mean, there's so many amazing bands on this compilation. So did you have to go back to your own archives when you were kind of thinking about how you wanted to put this book together? Yeah, uh, yes. And I had to like revisit a lot of opinions that, that I thought were pretty secure. Like at the beginning of the book process, uh, the agency was in the book. It was like, of course, the agency's in the book. And then it's really interesting. Like once you've looked at 5,000 images for three years straight, like they start like speaking to you and you start picking up like different cues within the imagery and different fashion things and uh, attitudes and whatnot. And you start to look at these things and you're like, this isn't an emo band. Like this is a band that I love that I work with that, that had some emo sensibilities at certain parts in their career, but the agency was not an emo band. <laughs> and it, it, um, it was really hard for me because the agency is so important to me, like as you know, a moment in history and sonically. And I was really sad to not include them. Um, but it just, when I put the puzzle pieces together, it just didn't fit. So that, yeah, that's a really good example of something that was super hard to deal with. There could be a part two where it's more punk related, right? So maybe there's another another book in this, maybe it becomes more like an anthology or something. I mean, there's there's a world where there's negatives, the punk archive and then negatives, the hardcore archive like there's I don't know how many years I have left in me, but <laughs> if there's a world where I can do more. We're still young, so there's time. 
there's definitely time for sure. sure. <laughs> so, th- so thinking about when you were growing up in Miami and what have you, you know, what were some of those clubs, some of those venues you really remember that stand out that you were going to and seeing some of the most shows? I mean, my origin story that, forgive me if you already know this or people listening already know this, but I live down the street from Cheers. So my first shows were at Cheers and I started booking shows at Cheers. Cheers was like a second home. Um, So that was really my most important South Florida venue. And uh, there were some places in Fort Lauderdale. Like I remember going to the edge. I can't remember. It wasn't always called the edge. Um, But when I was in high school, I saw like the boss tones there. I saw no effects there. Um, Just little memories like that. But for me, like cheers is end all be all of Florida. Yeah. A lot of great shows at cheers and Churchill's too. And that was another, another great spot to see a show. I love Churchill's. It wasn't, um, I did, you know, I didn't feel like at home there, like obviously, cause I didn't work there, <laughs> but, um, I was always a little nervous about parking my car. Um, which is very different in Miami these days. I was too. Don't worry. I I was worried too for my car. Yeah. It's like when the dude asks you for $5 to watch your car, you just give him $5 to watch your car and you do. (laughs) It's fine. Um, But yeah, no Churchill's was great. Yeah. There, you know, for people that aren't from South Florida, it's hard to explain the like lack of venues and the lack of like, uh, consistency of venues like when i think about like cities like i mean los angeles is a very duh you know one to visit but you think about like philadelphia like the trocadero like that's been there forever it's like not going anywhere at least hopefully not for now but in miami it was like someplace would close every 18 months or two years because of violence or zoning or parking or someone got stabbed type thing. So it was a strange place to have punk rock shows. What do you remember the first Florida band you ever became aware of? Um, I can't remember if it was either, it was either less than Jake or hot water, which is strange because they're both from Gainesville. Um, yeah, I think I went to cheers, you know, before I even knew what it was with some from friends from school. And I was like, what is this? This is great. I I like this. (laughs) Can I do this every night kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Did you get a chance to travel throughout Florida at all in that early time where you got to see shows in other places, like maybe like Tampa, Orlando, Gainesville? Um, Yes. As soon as I knew what this world was, I would drive up and down Florida like every weekend, basically. And in the early days of my label, like before any of us really knew what the heck we were doing, like I would book like a three-day tour, you call it a tour, for a band. It would be like a Miami show, an Orlando show, and a Gainesville show. And it'd be Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And, you know, you just make friends along the way and crash at people's houses and Tampa was amazing because there was this record store there called 403 Chaos and made some friends there that I still keep in touch with. And 
Orlando was always great. It was kind of the same as Miami, though, where the venue was like always changing in Orlando, except for I think it was the social was downtown. But that was like a real venue. But for like smaller venues, like I remember Newfound Glory played like a pizza shop, like somewhere in the suburbs. So but yeah, as soon as like someone had a car, we just we drove everywhere because also the major like national touring acts didn't always make it down to Miami. So sometimes you would have to drive up to wherever they were and just see the band that way. That is true. You'd yeah. have to go somewhere that was at least a two, three hour drive in some cases to see some of those bands play. So you mentioned uh, Newfound Glory and they were one of the earliest bands on your label, Fiddler Records. And so talk about that because they definitely were the, one of the ones that blew up and got really popular and, and are still doing their thing. So uh, what are your memories of working with them during that time? Um, it was just really silly. <laughs> um, you know, I, my memories of that time are like Ian Grushka just being like very extra and very silly and Jordan being super sensitive in a very sweet way. And, uh, the beginning of the band was a little bit confusing because Chad was still in Shy Halud. And Shahlud was so much bigger. So it was a question of like, how are we going to tour and who's going to fill in for Chad? And like that kind of stuff seems ridiculous these days because um, it's, you know, 20 years ago at this point. But that was the beginning. And, it, you know, Joe from Milkshed filled in for Chad for a bit. Um, I can't remember who else did, but Joe did a great job. I remember Joe did one like, you know, one, one run where, the band played at the Vero Beach Women's Club, Women's Center. Um, and that was just a really fun night. But yeah. Yeah, I remember that place. I think I saw Shia Lude play there once. And uh, yeah, it was a cool venue to see to see a show. And uh, another band that was early on in the catalog of Fiddler was Vacant Andes. And I've had uh, Dan Bonebreak on the, on the podcast before. So talk about that and working with them and also your long relationship too with Chris Caraba. Um, so the Vacant Indies were the first band. They were number one and their record will always be super special to me. It, it was a, it was a quick learning curve on that one where like, you know, I thought kids go to shows, kids like this band, I pressed 500 records and like 50 sold, which, you know, in hindsight, 50 is a lot like 500 is way too many. I press too many. Um, it feels ridiculous to even be like revisiting this little nugget of time in my life. But um, that was a good first jump into record production. A lot of the stuff that I learned on that release still stays with me, like what to do with something that you're promoting. Um but yeah, it was it was great. And that's how Chris and I became friends. And, you know, the Vacant Andes ran its course. And uh, what resulted in the end of that band was Chris playing solo. And that became Dashboard Confessional, which we all know the history of that. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a good experience, to say the least. At that time, were there any other bands in South Florida or even just Florida in general that you were trying to put out on the label, but for whatever reason, it just didn't happen. Oh, for sure. Um, 
there was a band from Orlando called Peterbilt that was like very emo, like quintessential emo, no questions about it. And they were pretty big. And I, I was trying to put out a split record, a split seven inch with them and another band. And it just never worked out. Like it was the strangest thing. Um, and I wonder if there, I mean, I always, I was always like waiting in the wings, like, you know, when I would see hot water, I'd be like, if you guys ever want to do a seven inch on my label, it'd be cool. You know, um, that what was happened? like, did they turn you down or just never happened or what? I don't even know if I really ever asked, you know, like, like, I think I was just there and excited and, um, I just thought they were the greatest, but, uh, you know, it's, I can't, there were so many fumbles like in those days, like, okay, I'm going to put this record out and then it doesn't happen. And it was, it was a messy, messy time. And you also had the zine too, that predated the label Fiddler Jones. And you had, you had that zine and was that your earliest publication you ever really put out? Cause now, you know, you've been in, you know, you reached you know, a book before the, before negatives called a million miles. Was Fiddler Jones the first actual publication that you actually put together? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking like high school, like 1996. Like I was making photocopies at Staples and stealing them. I think it wasn't even Staples. It was Office Depot on Coral Way. Um, so I, a publication is, is a very, <laughs> it's a big word for what it was. <laughs> a zine. Uh, yeah, that was my first jump into like making something for other people to see. Uh, and, you know, I, when I, when the label started doing well, I always kicked around the idea of bringing the zine back and it just never happened. Um, and I have to tell you like so many times when I was working on negatives, I was like, I'm just making a really big zine. Like this is all this is to me. It's the same thing, but it's a different, you know, arena. So it's, you know, it's still in me, whatever it was that I did back then. And then the the book that you did before negatives called a million miles that was a, was a really good book. And oh, uh, yeah. So talk about that for a minute. And what was that experience like? Cause that was your actual first book. That was my first book. Um, it's fiction. It's uh, I took, you know, 10,000 bits and pieces of my life and smushed them all together and made a fictionalized narrative of things. Um you know, it feels in the same way as zine stuff. Like it feels so long ago now, like even though it hasn't been that long, but I feel like I've learned so much working on negatives with like a wonderful publisher and like a all-star editor. Like, I feel like it's like when I look at a million miles now, like I I still love it, but it's like, I, I see things I could have done differently. But um, I still love it. <laughs> sure. I think we all kind of look back and see, okay, well, we could have and we should have. And, you know, and then yeah. that's the next project. <laughs> so, yeah. so your family and stuff, how have they received what you've done over the years, especially back when you started your own label and stuff? Because that's some, not something every 16-year-old does. So how did your parents kind of receive what you were doing? And even to this day with what you're doing as as an author? Um. I think my parents were 
proud yet confused about what I was doing and what it all meant and like where it was going, where there was always this narrative of like, you have to go to college, you have to finish college, like you have to get a real job kind of thing. And that really like wove in and out of my like career where certain at certain points where I would have a lull in creating things, I would be like, well, I'm going to go back to college and figure my life out. Um, they're, they're amazing. They're super supportive, super proud. I mean, listen, I was 15 years old. I weighed probably 86 pounds and they would let me go to cheers with my friends that were older than me. And they were incredibly lenient, like just be home by midnight kind of thing. Um, I have an older brother that I think, I think he exhausted them to the point of defeat where they were like, you're good. Like, we know you're not going to do anything crazy. Like just come home safely, please. Which, you know, to grow up in a house like that is like beyond privileged and blessed. So, and now that I'm a parent and I look back at those things, it's, you know, gratitude is huge. (laughs) Um, I think um, my dad is a huge music fan. Um, He's a jazz and Motown guy, which is kind of where when I started getting into music, there weren't a lot of record stores to buy punk and hardcore things from, but there was Blue Note in sort of Fort Lauderdale. It was like North Miami Beach-ish, I think it was. Um, And the deal was my dad would drive me to Blue Note and he would go to the one side that was the jazz section. And then I would go to the other side, which was the punk section. And that's where I met Lindell. Did you know Lindell? Do you know who I'm talking about? No, I don't know him, but I have had Bob Blue Note on the podcast before. Wow. I mean, Bob is like the godfather. So great stories. Um, great stories. Great dude. Yeah. 100%. So Lindell was the punk version of Bob and he had his own wing of the store. And when I, you know, my first real like obsession with music was like grunge alternative you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots. And I remember walking in, you know, probably wearing a shirt from one of those bands. And Lindell was like, let me show you something cool. Like, and he would just load me up with like records to listen to and and like Maximum Rock and Roll and Punk Planet and like flyers from shows. And he he was huge. He was like a huge piece of the scene. You know, you mentioned how you kind of grew up listening to a lot of grunge and a lot of that was being aired on MTV back in like the 90s and stuff like that. So yeah. when when it came the time when you got a chance to see the bands you knew, you grew up with, like you saw that first video of Screaming Infidelities on MTV or you got a chance to see Hit or Miss from Newfound Glory on MTV or the MTV Unplugged from Dashboard. What was that like for you when you got a chance to really sit down and see some of these bands and people that you knew and grew up with on a channel that you grew up watching all these bands play on? Um, I don't know if I've ever really processed it. Like it still doesn't feel normal or real, you know, like for some reason when the venues got big and the venues got real big, like, you're physically like present in a thing. You're like, I'm at Madison Square Garden with Chris. We're here. Like, 
I'm in the thing it's happening right now. But when it was like bands that I worked with and bands that I knew playing like Conan O'Brien, it just like, it feels otherworldly and it still does. Like it still feels like, wait, we're doing what? Like what's happening? So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird phenomenon for sure. Were there any other Florida bands, especially in the emo genre or even punk, who you felt like just were really under the radar, never really got the attention that they deserved that we haven't talked about already? Anyone come to mind? Um, I'm sure you've touched on this in your podcast before, but for me, the end all of be all of cool when I was young in South Florida was quit. Like quit was like, I didn't understand why they weren't as big as Green Day. It was like, how is this a thing? How are they not that big? Like, what went wrong kind of thing? And it's honestly something that I I think about way too often for a normal person. But, like, I remember talking to Addison, Addie, and, you know, they quit the band, which is the irony of the name. and, And he was like, it's time to, like, grow up and get a job and, like, be an adult. And, like... I remember him telling me things like that when I was like 16, 17. And in my head, I was like, okay, at some point I'm going to have to grow up and get a real job and like dress like an adult. And because what happened got so big and it became so real, I never really had to do that, you know, but I always had it in the back of my mind. Like at some point, like we all have to like go home and grow up. Um, Unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately. And, you know, yeah, I feel, I don't know. I wish quit got their due. You know, they, they, I think, I think Addy lives in Gainesville now. And I think he's even in new bands, but yeah, it was a place in time thing for sure. It just didn't, didn't hit right. They're all pretty busy. Uh, Andre's got a studio, I think in Palm Beach. Uh, Mofsky still doing his thing, Goldust Lounge, and he plays all around Miami and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, they're all still very busy doing their thing. So what do you remember about the first time you saw Quit? Remember where, where you first saw them or just a, any memories of seeing them play live? I think, I think they had already quit for the first time by the time I discovered them. They were like folklore. Like if you had the earlier thoughts CD, you were like, here, take this. It's wonderful. Like it was like Lord of the Rings, hold it and cherish it. And then they, they came back around and there was this weird uh, incarnation of a record label run by the university of Miami. And I was going to school there at the time And it was run through their like music business program, which felt really strange to me because it was like, okay, I go to this college and I have a record label and now the college has a record label. And I remember trying to like meet people that worked with them. Um, It felt like some like experiment because they were like, well, we'll let our engineers that are in school record the band and then we'll have our music business majors produce the record and put it out. And it was just like, I don't think you know what you're doing, um, said the 17-year-old with a ponytail. But um, I remember, do you remember Donut Run from years yeah, ago? Yeah, of course. Okay, so Donut Run became Pivot for all whatever intensive purposes. And it was Rob's new band. 
And Pivot was on that label. And it like, they kept messing things up and it just didn't work out. Um, And then there were talks of quit doing something with them because it was like, you would get all access to their engineers and and studios. So people were like, this is great. Because at the time, the most expensive thing was studio time. It was like, how do we get in somewhere to record on tape? Like there was no digital. It was like, well, you can record with Jeremy at Tapeworm if you've got two grand, which is like, I don't know, I can fly to the moon kind of money. So yeah, I that's a really weird memory. I don't even know what happened. I think there were um there was another band and all of them went to UM. They were called Going Nowhere. Do you remember that band? I do. Yes. Okay. So yeah, their singer Dan, I think we dated. <laughs> Sorry, Dan, if you're listening. Um <laughs> and their drummer, Mark Del Campo, was a WVUM DJ. That's what it is. And I was a DJ too, and it was all mixed up. That's a weird memory, dude. I haven't thought about this stuff in a really long time. <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about it. This is the place to do it. So WVUM, definitely, uh, I imagine, a huge influence. Also, you mentioned, we talked about Quit. 88.5 WKPX was the first time I actually heard Quit because <laughs> I had played well, all. What radio station is 88.5? It was at a Piper High School. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. So okay. it, it was in Broward. So they'd play all the local stuff. They played the quits, the against all authorities, the Mansons. I mean, Whoa. the loads. Yeah. All that stuff, all that was going on in, in, in South Florida at that time. <laughs> oh my so, God. Funny how some words just come out as you're talking. Yeah. But yes. So yes. Yeah, so that was definitely a huge thing. So how important was that to you? Just the, the radio at that time and picking up on some of those bands that you didn't know of. Um, I mean, WVUM was huge. Like, so as soon as music was a part of things in my life, there was, what was the rock station? 94.9 Zeta? Was that the like? There was Zeta. There was the Gator. There was uh, was 103.5 WSAG, maybe? She Radio? 103 She, yes. Yeah. Okay. So in high school... You know, two of my friends had cars, like of of 15 of us, two people had cars. So you would get in the car and there'd be too many of you and not enough seatbelts. And you were either going to listen to WVUM or whatever tape like somebody had. And depending on like who was in the car, it would be like Rage Against the Machine. And it's like, okay, now we're listening to Bomb Track over and over again. Or it would be Paul's Boutique. Or it would be Operation Ivy. And then when we got sick of it, you turn on WVUM. And the most legendary WVUM DJ was this guy named John Pookie. <laughs> you probably don't know John Pookie. No, I don't think so. He would do these um, bumpers that just comedic genius. So uh, eventually... When I went to college and I, you know, wandered over to the WVUM office and I was like, hi, I like music and John Pookie's my favorite. Like, can I do the punk and hardcore show? And they were like, well, you're a freshman and we don't give freshmen uh, radio shows. 
Uh, but there's this dude over there and his name is Aramis and he's doing the punk show and you can do it with him. And it was like, I think Aramis just hated me from day one because like I took half of his radio show. It's funny. <laughs> um, and, but yeah, it was, it felt really cool to like do DJ stuff and like be on local radio. Um, Cause in Miami, probably similar to every other city and town in the United States. Like when you're 18 years old and you either live in a dorm or you live with your parents or you live with your friends, like there's nothing to do. Like Miami's a very like 21 and up town. So we hung out in a lot of parking lots. Like you just find a parking lot and someone has a guitar and somebody has a skateboard and you just sit and talk shit for six hours. And, um, you know, the radio was like the the background of that. So being WVUM was a huge moment for me. I loved it so much. Yeah. And I remember those days. I said, I think maybe more so in Broward, you'd hang out in the parking lot of a Taco Bell because it was open. (laughs) It was open so late. Or you'd find like a Borders to go to and then hang out there. So uh... Borders was great. And Barnes and Nobles, they were great because you could go in and use the bathroom. Like it was like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> big, big come up. Oh, I got to use the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, uh, definitely important. So uh, as we kind of get close to rounding out the interview here and, and just, and just thinking about, you know, all the things you've accomplished and all the things you had a chance to do, was there anything specific back in that period that you wish you would have done that you never had the chance to do? Um, I don't know. I, I wish most appropriately of the time right now, I wish I had a video camera. Like I, I wish I carried my camera more often. And I wish, I mean, like if I had been rolling like with this in so many places, it would have been so great. Like that would be my time machine moment. Like, okay, if you can go back and change one thing, like take a camera and put it in your hand and then disappear back again. Um, uh, a guy from South Florida, his name is Ryan Reeb. He's a videographer. He works in like VFX for like major motion pictures now. Like I'm talking Marvel and Planet of the Apes. Um, he he was in last minute and he was a video guy. He was recording a ton of things. And he recently sent me some footage. And it's literally like Caraba, Jordan from Newfound Glory, um, I can't remember who else. It's like five people that are like, oh my God, you're all just standing there. And I think it was like some of the Saves the Day guys. It was at a show that I booked. And like Ryan is shooting a can of Mountain Dew off to the side. Like, and it's like, I want to reach into the footage and be like, turn the camera on the people. Like, so yeah, long, long answer to a short question. Oh, no, good <laughs> answer. I actually went to high school with Ryan Reed. We graduated oh, from the same no. high school. So wait, was it ter- Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Douglas? Yeah, Stoneman Douglas. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Are yes. you still in touch with him? Uh, I am not, I'm not, but that that doesn't mean anything because I'm not in touch with anybody from high school, really. So, but no, we're not in touch. But I remember seeing last minute, I remember seeing them, Newfound Glory, at Dad's Donuts in Coconut yeah. Creek. Did you ever go there? I was at that show for sure. Yeah. What are your memories of that one? Yeah. Uh, mayhem. Like too many people. I think the power cut out at some point. I remember it like went dark. 
yeah, that was a that was a weird night for sure. It was an interesting place to see to see shows. There was actually quite a few shows there from what I can remember, but uh, couldn't go to them all. So, but uh, an- another quick venue to talk about that also came maybe a little bit later was Club Q. Did you ever chance to see, a, see any shows there? Yeah, I actually booked shows at Club Q. Um, it was really strange. Uh, it was like a biker bar. Um, it was a strange, strange place. But yeah, Cindy was the person at Club Q. I think I still have her phone number memorized. But yeah, I booked a lot. Like, so after Cheers closed, I had nowhere to go. And somebody was like, call Club Q. And and that's how that happened. But yeah. Well, thanks for so much for sharing some of these memories. I know it's not always easy to recall some of them. They happened so long ago, but it's great to take a trip down memory lane and hear about your life and some of these stories and some of the bands you remember, the label Fiddler, the fanzine, uh, everything that you did, and also especially your new book, Negatives, which which is going to be really awesome to check out. So uh, as we kind of close out the interview, Amy, I'm going to kind of pitch it off to you. Any last words to kind of wrap things up? I mean, we covered so much. I, I'm trying to remember people that I dated and, you know, what what fun, what other fun things can we talk about? Um, I know I'm going to do an in-store event in Miami at Books and Books, I think in the new year. So if you want to come to that, I'll be there signing books and talking about the emo things. Um but yeah, that's this this was fun. Thanks for this like wild trip down memory lane. <laughs>